Lauren is now going to uh, bring us our Bible reading uh, for today. It is from Acts chapter 1, from verses 21 through to chapter 2, verse 23. Thank you, Lauren. All right, so we're jumping in in the middle of a story. Um, the disciples need to choose another apostle in Judas's place. So Acts 1, 21. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all that time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barabbas, no, not Barabbas, Barsabbas, (laughs) who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for him, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia... Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on the male male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood." Before the, Lord, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let me ask you this morning, what does it mean to be charismatic? Perhaps you are unfamiliar with the term. But I suspect that for many of us, uh, we have come to associate the term charismatic with those brothers and sisters in Christ who are famous for praying for healing, speaking in tongues, and occasionally waving flags. These are all things that I am personally very familiar with. Uh, I remember in church growing up, singing a song based on the very passage that we just read. Peter said, these are not drunk as you suppose. They're just very, very filled with the whole... Anyone know it? Yeah. Yep, my wife. There you go. Kids, uh, you can ask your parents or one of our elders if you still don't know what I'm talking about afterwards. Please feel free. I'm sure they will be happy to explain that to you. Now, uh, that's what the term charismatic generally means today, but it actually comes from the Greek word charisma, meaning gift, and more specifically, gracious gift, gift of grace. As I taught a couple of weeks ago, such grace gifts are given to all Christians. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. That's the very term that Paul, used, uh, Paul uses there. And so I'm with uh, Don Carson when he says, it is for this reason that I do not like to talk about the charismatic movement unless I am given space to define terms. It seems like a terrible reduction of the manifold grace of God. Now, I understand that words can mean different things and we assign meaning to words. So I'm not suggesting that we can't use the term charismatic the way that it is commonly used. But I make this point right here at the outset because I want to draw our attention to the fact that to live the charismatic life defined this way, the biblical way, is something that all Christians do. It's not just for a, a certain wing of Christianity. So regardless of what denomination you're in, if you're a Christian, you are charismatic you have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're visiting uh, here this morning, we've been preaching through 1 Corinthians over the last few weeks, uh, continuing a series that we started over a year ago. A few weeks ago, we uh, picked it back up from chapter 12, and this morning and next Sunday, we're taking a break from our usual practice of preaching through books to consider two relevant topics, especially because they are extremely relevant to 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. So this morning, we are talking about continuationism and cessationism. Kids, anyone know what those words mean? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't a few years ago either. They sound like uh, long and complicated words, but most basically, they refer to one thing, spiritual gifts. And they get their names uh, from uh, the question of whether those spiritual gifts that are talked about in Scripture from the, the verse I just put up before, whether they continue or whether they cease. 
And so as you might guess, continuationism is the view that uh, many, if uh, not all, of the spiritual gifts mentioned in these chapters and others in the Bible, they continue today, especially what we might call the sign gifts. Cessationism is the view that at least the sign gifts have ceased. I'll talk a bit more about those two later. But before I dive into an exploration of the Bible to understand the main points of these two big tents, I want to spend a little bit of time considering why this is important. You see, this morning's sermon uh, will necessarily be information heavy, uh, but I will do my best to keep, uh, keep at the front of our hearts and minds, not just our understanding of this, but its implications. What does it mean for our lives? And in order to do that, let me anticipate the first question that you might be asking. Is this even important? Uh, (laughs) Do we really need to take the time to actually consider this topic? There are faithful Christians who believe different things on this. How should we think about it? What do we do with that? Well, let me uh, say from the very beginning that this is what we might call a third-tier issue. That is, to disagree on whether the spiritual gifts continue or whether they cease or whether there's something in between does not put a person with whom you disagree about this outside the Christian faith. Nor is it something that we, uh, as a church, have agreed is significant enough that we think that you should sign it on our church's statement of faith. And I speak on behalf of all of our members there because it's not on our statement of faith. It doesn't mean that it's... But because of that... Even though it is a third-tier issue, it does not mean that it is unimportant. John Piper, a theologian and pastor that I am extremely thankful for, has said in one of his Ask Pastor John podcast episodes that all things being equal, cessationists do miss out on the full joys of Christianity. Now, he he does say all things being equal because he knows that what you believe on this certainly isn't the only thing which determines whether you have a, a, a depth and a fullness of Christian faith. But he's saying that at bottom, if you don't believe that the spiritual gifts continue and you don't seek after them, then you're missing a key part of what it means to live as a spirit filled, grace gifted Christian. And I don't blame him. All all he's doing there is simply stating the the practical conclusion of that view. It makes sense. If they continue, why would you not seek them? On the flip side, yet another John, whom I'm extremely thankful for, John MacArthur, has written a few books on this topic and run conferences about it. He's been very vocal and very critical of what is commonly called the charismatic movement. His first book on it was called Charismatic Chaos. That'll give you a little bit of an idea of what he thinks. And so for the cessationists seeking spiritual gifts that are no longer being given today is at best a waste of time and at worst false or even demonic. Now, there's heaps to say about this topic. And so I don't imagine that I'll be able to say it all this morning. But I do hope that this will serve as a good launch pad for us to continue talking about this and to continue to seek growing faithfulness uh, to God and by His Word. 
So even though by the end of today, uh, I'm not planning on adding an extra item to our statement of faith and, and asking you all to sign it, I hope we also recognize and grapple with the, the significance of some of the implications of what we believe of these things and that we do so together. So what does it mean to live as charismatic, spirit-filled, spirit-gifted Christians individually and in Christ's church today? And how do we do that? We're going to make a start on this answer in three sections. Firstly, we'll talk about common ground. Secondly, we'll cover the two big tents, continuationism and cessationism. And thirdly, we'll talk about the charismatic life. So let's begin by looking at common ground, number one. Now, I want to do this because... Uh, There are some continuationists, like uh, some Pentecostals and uh, those in the New Apostolic Reformation, who would not share the common ground that I'm about to talk about this morning. John MacArthur, in his books and conferences, is referring to the excesses of the charismatic movement, its tendency towards the prosperity gospel, its weak or non-existent teaching on the actual gospel, its obsession with the gifts and the signs... Uh, that kind of thing. And on this point, uh, I largely agree with what he is actually saying. And and I don't say that just because of the published examples that he gives in his book, Strange Fire, but also as someone who has firmly uh, been in that movement and was for the first 28 years of my life. Name just about any excess that you find uh, strange uh, or, or perhaps wrong in the charismatic movement, and I can almost guarantee that I would have been part of something similar in my life. But what we're looking at at this morning is not the excesses. Uh, In fact, I think the term continuationist was probably coined to try and get away from the excesses of the charismatic movement. I know this morning we're looking at what faithful brothers and sisters like John Piper and John MacArthur believe about Scripture and the continuation or the cessation of spiritual gifts. So let me affirm five things that we all agree on that are essential to the Spirit-gifted life. Firstly, the Gospel. Secondly, the Sola Scriptura and the closed canon. Thirdly, a supernatural worldview. Fourthly, the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit in every believer. Fifthly, the uniqueness of Jesus and the Apostles' ministry. So firstly, uh, both camps, they believe in the Gospel. We believe that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, though we were initially made in His image. And we are therefore condemned to God's wrath. But we are justified by faith in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning uh, and you haven't heard this before, or you're curious about Christianity, let me urge you to consider Christ this morning. The Spirit-filled life is one where God's Holy Spirit comes and lives in us when we turn away from our sin and when we trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross for our sin. It is by grace, through faith, that we receive His salvation. If that is not something you have done, if that is not something that you, uh, have, where you have turned to Jesus in your life, let me encourage you to do so today and come and chat to me or to any of our other members here at Emmaus Road. if you'd like to know more or to to discuss that further. Secondly, we believe that the Bible that we have today and its 66 books is what we call the canon. 
the, the official list, if you say, of God's spoken word, and that it is closed. That means that there are no more books to add to it. God has spoken, and we have the enormous privilege of being able to read what He spoke through His Son and through His apostles. And so this leads us to the second part of this point. If you're unfamiliar with the term, sola scriptura is a Latin phrase which means scripture alone. The meaning is that scripture alone is our infallible authority. The Bible alone is the very words of God. So we don't believe that the Pope can speak new revelation from God today. He cannot do that. And yes, God has given His people other authorities In the church, we have elders and deacons, and in our families, we have parents. God has ordained those authorities, and we have authority in government, in our societies. But all such authorities must submit to the ultimate authority of Scripture. That is what sola scriptura means. And both camps agree on this point. It's only the fringes that would go further and suggest that someone today can speak something that could be added to the Bible. So, for example, this is what the Mormons believe. Joseph Smith received revelation from God, which is now recorded in the Book of Mormon. Thirdly, both camps are committed to a supernatural worldview. Uh, As Sam Storms says, Christianity is inescapably supernatural. We believe in a God who can break what we would call the laws of nature and has done so. He has turned water into blood and wine. He has sent fire from heaven. He has parted and calmed seas. He has brought dead people back to life. He has healed all sorts of people of all sorts of infirmities and sicknesses. No Christian, not even a cessationist, denies this. Fourthly, all believe that the Holy Spirit fills and dwells within every person who is a true believer. Now, some will argue about the terminology and the different points about what this looks like and, and what, is, what its ongoing nature is, but both camps believe that every person who is saved and when a person is born again, they receive the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, the uniqueness, uh, all believe that no one has possessed the same kind of sign gifts that Jesus and the apostles did since then. John Piper puts it like this. There never has been, to my knowledge, anybody or any group who has continued the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. By that, I mean, there never has been anybody who healed like Jesus healed and healed like the apostles healed. Instantaneously, infallibly, and the hardest cases... All healing movements that I know of avoid the hardest cases, they heal in process generally and not instantaneously, and they fail very often. There are no duplications in history of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, period. If you know of one, please tell me about it. And please tell me too. Don't just go and tell John Piper, tell me if you know of one. Now, that's not to deny that such miracles could have occurred in history. It's simply a fact that there has been no period that even comes close to what we see in the Bible. People laid the sick in Peter's shadow, hoping that they would be healed. And handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul were taken to the sick so that they would be healed. 
That kind of ministry has never been repeated in the 2,000 years since it happened. And everyone agrees that this is a fact of history. Those are the five things that both camps broadly agree on. So this narrows the field a bit to what we're talking about. As I said, there are fringes and extremists in both directions. We're not talking about them. The two big tents that I'll be describing this morning all agree on these five things. In addition to that, let me give you one more which is shared by the majority, if not all, and is a very significant piece. This is a bonus point. The end of the apostolate. Apostolate meaning the group of apostles, the the, the group of men who made up the apostles. Uh, One of the things that uh, whenever I preach uh, that I have to pay close attention to is the meaning of words. So if you've ever learned a, a second language or perhaps if you have been close to kids as they've learned to speak or if you have ever traveled to another English speaking country other than Australia, then you'll know the struggle of learning the meaning of a word and then finding out that native speakers or other speakers use it in different ways. I experienced this in, in the US when I went there and uh, I, I talked about the rubbish and they had no idea what I was talking about. I was like, are you serious? Rubbish? Garbage? Aren't they just the same thing? And I would say, put it in the bin. They don't say bin, they say gar- trash. They say, put it in the trash. And a bin is a larger receptacle, not, not something you put rubbish into, right? Kids, have you ever had that experience? You've learned a word and then you've heard somebody use it in a different way? Anyone? Yeah. Have you got an example? In America, same thing. Yeah, that's happened a few times. Anyone else? Got any examples? No, but I'm sure you, you have experienced it, right? Because everybody knows that when you're sick, that means you're sick and that you've like, you're coughing or something. But when you like go to a, something which is like a party, which is really great, it's like, that was sick, right? You know what I'm saying? It's especially confusing. And so sometimes a word can have a broad meaning as well as a more specific meaning, which narrows the definition even further. So, for example, the word servant can more generally mean a person who is serving someone else in different ways. Let me serve you. Or it can also mean, in more specifically, someone whose official role, whose job is actually to be a servant. There's an old Christian song with the line, Brother, let me be your servant. Well, Christians don't sing that song because they're looking for a job. We, we sing that because we want to serve one another in all sorts of different ways. And that's actually a relevant example. See, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, there are a few terms that are used in a general sense in the original language and then also used in a more specific sense. So, for example, the word diakonos in Greek is used to mean a few things in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, Jesus uses it as a general word to describe a servant. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul uses the term to describe himself as a minister of the gospel. And in 1 Timothy 3.8, Paul uses it to describe an office in the church, a particular role which we translate in English as deacon. 
And so all of these verses use the same word in the original Greek, yet in all situations, the context tells us what it means, which is why our Bibles translate them as they do. And so we have the same thing with the Greek word apostolos. The literal meaning of the word here is sent one or one who is sent. And there is also a background equivalent Hebrew word to it, which is shaliach. Can anyone read Hebrew? One, two, uh, hey. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Shaliach. I can't read or speak Hebrew, but I have it on good authority uh, that the meaning of this word is that, is that of an emissary. That is one of a legal representative, a power of eternity. Somebody who is, is representing somebody else and that person who is representing, it's like as if that person is there. And so kids, a loose analogy of this is when one of your parents tells you to deliver an instruction to another of your siblings. Has, has anyone had that? Kids, have you ever had that before? You know, kids, go and tell your sister this. Go and tell them to brush their teeth. Yep, you got that? That's happened. And so, uh, when you do that, in one sense, you are a shaliach or an apostolos for your parents. Now, if you're the older sibling or perhaps the oldest sibling and you're delivering the instruction, uh, uh, and, and, uh, sorry, older than the sibling delivering the instruction to you from your mum and dad, you might be tempted to think, hang on, no, I'm older than you. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. But if you disobeyed the message, it doesn't matter if you are older than the sibling delivering it, you are disobeying not the sibling, but your parents. Because even though your parents are not there, they have given you uh, the authority as their representative to deliver that message. And so when that sibling speaks... Your parent is speaking. In all uses of the word apostolos in the Bible, it carries this sense of a representative who is sent. And so in a few of the uses in the Bible, it is speaking generally about messengers who have been sent by the church to preach the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 8.23 is one example. So occasionally it is translated as messengers. But in the majority of uses in the New Testament, it refers to a more specific office or role, that is, as an emissary or a representative of Jesus Himself. One of the helpful ways that Christians often try to distinguish between the two in writing is by using a capital A when we're talking about this, this specific role, and we, we put a lowercase a when talking about the more general rule. Our English Bibles, they don't do this, which is important to note, they, they just translate it as lowercase every time without seeking to make a theological point. So it's up to us to consider each context and to work out the meaning. And so the main criteria of being Jesus' apostles were that, to be part of this group, to be part of the apostolate, were that one, he was chosen and sent by Jesus himself, two, he had seen the risen Lord in the flesh, not just in a vision, but in the flesh. And three, he was confirmed as an apostle through signs. Jesus himself chooses and gives authority to his 12 apostles. We see that in Matthew 10, verses 1 to 2. 
And this is probably why Paul emphasized the fact that he was chosen by Jesus himself in his letters, perhaps most clearly at the beginning of Galatians. You see, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And as you read through the rest of the New Testament, you find uh, that this term and this particular role is something that is thought of as not just not just a general role. They are not just guys generally sent by Jesus, but it is actually a specific role. And this is clearly seen in Acts chapter 1 when the apostles replaced Judas. Thank you, Lauren, when you read that out, giving us a bit of context. Sorry to just drop you in in the middle of of that story. But as we read it earlier, we saw that they put forward two guys who filled the criteria seen Jesus, walked with Him, knew His teaching. And notice how they put forward two of these men who met the criteria. Now, if anyone could be an apostle, why would you not just take them both? Right? But here we see the the apostles played a specific role in the life of the early church and indeed in church history. And that's why they only replaced Judas with one other. And their uniqueness the apostles is seen also in the way that John talks about himself and the other apostles at the beginning of his first letter. Let me read to you from First uh, John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you notice how John, at the beginning of that letter, he makes it unmistakably clear that they, the apostles, we, he's saying, are the ones who saw with our own eyes and touched with our own hands Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God. That is not something that any of us can claim. And listen to what he has to say later on in the letter. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice the clear distinction in uh, John's letter there, in that little phrase, between us and you and them. The apostles, they weren't just any people sent by God. They had a specific role to play as Jesus' representatives. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and of His physical body, and they were chosen and sent by Jesus Himself. And their ministry was confirmed through signs. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, that the signs of a true apostle were that of signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, these are all indicators of the fact that the apostles were a select group of people 
When the apostles spoke and acted, it was as though Jesus himself was speaking and acting. That's a pretty incredible thing to consider. And Scripture indicates to us that this group had an end, it had a finish. So consider 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is talking about Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. He says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Not only that, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians and John in Revelation use the image of the apostles being the foundation of the church. It's a very clear picture of their unique role in the beginning and the setting up of Christ's church. So, as you can see, the picture that we get of what we call the apostolate, this group of disciples that Jesus Himself set apart as His representatives, had a clear beginning and end point. So, as I said, this is not disputed by both camps. It's where they go next that is interesting. And I hope knowing this about the apostolate is encouraging to you. For me, personally, I was always disappointed when I was uh, encouraged to pray hard and grow in faith so that I could see these same signs and wonders that the apostles themselves performed. I threw myself into that, believing that if I could just grow more in my faith, then maybe God would do it. Maybe I'd be walking along and see a crippled person one day and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, and then it would happen. But there was always a niggling thought in the back of my mind that there was something, something was wrong, that maybe I'd gotten this wrong. And so as I came to understand the uniqueness of the apostolic era and the primacy of the Bible, it did feel for a little while for me, quite a while, like I was copping out on my faith. That maybe, you know, this, this was just the easy way out. But as I've grown in trusting God and and taking Him at His word, I can honestly say that it has served to increase my faith in Him to increase my my joy in knowing that the God who has performed these incredible things is the same God who is powerful to save me, powerful to bring me to Him. And it has encouraged me to know that the lack of seeing such things in my life is not because I am somehow deficient or I am somehow lacking in faith. I know and I am too keenly aware of the fact that if faith was entirely up to me, I would not be able to carry that. And so if that is you this morning, if you feel the the, the burden of that, the weight of that, as though you are somehow insufficient or insignificant or, or, you know, you can't even muster up a mustard seed of faith, and I pray that you would find this encouraging. I pray that you would find a firm and a sure faith in a good God whose power to do wondrous things is not constrained by your faith, by us. He is the one that we put our faith in and the one that we can trust. So with that, let's look at our two big tents, continuationism and cessationism.
Now, just to be clear, these terms, they're not biblical terms. Uh, These are just words that we use to try and understand some key distinctives of what certain people think about the Bible. I I think they're helpful to use, but I certainly don't think we need to, you know, try and pigeonhole everybody. So, let's start with continuationism. What I hope to do in this section is to give you the strongest points for both of these two big tents that I'm aware of. There's lots more that can be said about both, but I hope to cover the main ideas. So let me uh, summarize the continuationist position in three key ideas with the main texts used to support them. Firstly, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all believers is a necessary and ongoing mark of the church until the second coming of Christ. Secondly, the burden of proof is on cessationists to prove that the Bible teaches that the spiritual gifts cease. Thirdly, they hold to necessary definitions of key gifts, two key gifts, prophecy and tongues. So, to make the first point, continuationists turn to Acts 2, which we read earlier, when Peter gets up to explain the phenomenon of all of these people speaking other languages. Here, he quotes Joel 2, which we also read at the beginning, and is clearly saying that what everybody has just witnessed, this incredible miracle that makes you think that these guys are drunk at 10 in the morning, or whatever it is, is clearly saying that this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. What Joel prophesied all those centuries ago has now come to pass. And so, if we look at the content of Joel's prophecy and see that the Spirit is poured out on everyone, Sam Storms calls it the democratizing of the Holy Spirit, then they will all prophesy and see visions, all of them. Continuation to say, if this is what that is saying, then where is the verse that says, you know, that that was only for this period of the church's history? Where is the verse that says that the Spirit is poured out and everyone will prophesy and then suddenly... Everyone won't. The chapters that we're currently preaching through in 1 Corinthians are then used to bolster this point. So because Paul gives instructions to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 about how to exercise the gifts in the church, why doesn't he then just say, and you know, uh, when I and the other apostles, they all die, just forget about everything I said in these chapters. Especially chapter 14. In particular, they point to verses 8 to 10 of chapter 13, which we looked at last week. You might remember it. I say that because the perfect refers to the coming of Christ, and Paul says that the gifts will cease when the perfect comes, then the implication is that they will be around with us in this age right up until that moment when the perfect does indeed come, when Christ comes again. That is the point where the gifts cease. And so this leads to our next point. The burden of proof is on cessationists to show why the signed gifts have ceased. For continuationists, they look at this evidence, the absence of any obvious text that says that the signed gifts have ceased, and they say, well, chapters you know, 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians, we can read that pretty easily. We just read it, and then we just do what it says. Now, as I noted earlier, that comes with the qualification that these gifts might look different to how they did in the first century. 
But that doesn't mean that they are not still active and present in the church today. So some, for example, would argue that a person can indeed have a gift of apostleship, but we're just talking about the general sense and not the specific sense. Cessationists need to explain how and why the Bible teaches that the sign gifts have ceased. And they're right. The burden of proof is on cessationists to demonstrate their case from Scripture. One of the reasons continuationists can assert this about these chapters in 1 Corinthians is because of their definitions of prophecy and tongues, which brings us to the third key idea. I won't talk about this uh, too much this morning because I'll return to it in greater detail next week. But basically, this is essential to the continuationist's case. <coughs> Prophecy in the New Testament era must not refer to the same kind of infallible word that prophets spoke in the Old Testament. It cannot. If it does, the whole thing falls apart. And by infallible... I mean unable to fail, as in because it's from God and He is perfect and He is unable to do wrong, unable to uh, err, to have any errors, then that's what that means. So with this uh, different definition that the New Testament teaches that prophecy can be wrong, continuationists say that when Paul talks about the spiritual gift of prophecy, He's talking about a kind of prophecy that we can still earnestly seek after and ask God to give us today. So if prophecy is not the same thing as being able to speak words that could be added to the Bible, where you could confidently say, thus says the Lord, and know for sure that He is speaking, then there is no inconsistency between the spiritual gift of prophecy continuing today and the canon being closed. As for tongues, they are not to be understood as an actual language spoken by people on the planet, as we saw in Acts 2, but they are to be understood as some kind of ecstatic language. That is, one that doesn't have to have a code or grammatical structure, but is the Holy Spirit communicating through groans and sounds in a person. And so the justification for this, as we saw last week, uh, mostly comes from 1 Corinthians 13.1 and some key verses in chapter 14. And sometimes there is an appeal to Romans 8, verse 26. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Those are the main three points of a continuationists. So, what do the cessationists have to say? Well, let me summarize their case in four points. Firstly, if at least one gift has ceased, apostleship, then... Uh, that opens the door to the possibility of others ceasing. Secondly, from the earlier writings of the New Testament to the later ones, we see a decline in the miraculous. Thirdly, in the thousands of years of the Bible's narrative, there are only three periods where God did many extraordinary things through people, and their purpose was to authenticate their message. And fourthly, there are important definitions of key terms, prophecy and tongues. Uh, now, this, this first point basically speaks for itself. As I mentioned earlier, virtually nobody tries to argue that the apostolate has continued. 
So this cessationists say, if you concede that this is possible, then why is it such a big stretch to think that perhaps other gifts may also have ceased? Secondly, uh, they say that the New Testament itself indicates that as time goes on, the miraculous gifts, they seem to die out. Uh, 1 Corinthians was one of the earlier books to be written, and it's the only one that speaks so freely about the miraculous spiritual gifts. So, given the, time, the period of time in which 1 Corinthians was written, it makes sense that Paul could say that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. As we saw, the apostles were foundational in the building of the church, which is why it makes sense that Paul would say that God has appointed them first. But notice how Paul, in this section of uh, Corinthians, twice, he exhorts believers to earnestly desire the higher gifts but he doesn't once mention that they should seek apostleship. I mean, he's just listed apostleship as the highest, the first of all the gifts, yet he encourages them to go for the next highest. Go for silver, kids. Why would he do that? Later on, when Paul writes to Timothy and gives him instructions on how to order the church, he only outlines two offices, that of overseer and deacon. Neither of these qualifications in Timothy or Titus say that they should be able to prophesy. Rather, they should be able to teach. Not only that, but further down in his first letter, Paul talks about Paul's frequent ailments, and this is the instruction he gives him. No longer drink any only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, one has to ask, why would Paul say this if throughout his ministry, uh, people would, would take handkerchiefs and aprons and that had touched his skin and then go and take them to the sick so that they would be healed? Was his gift of healing, you know, perhaps a little bit unreliable? Was it that he, he didn't have, you know, a spare cloth that he could touch and send with the person who gave the, the, delivered the letter to Timothy? Was, I mean, at the very least, why can't he just turn the water into wine for Timothy so that, you know, he can... Or might it be that after that initial period of God confirming the ministry of the apostles with miraculous works, the purpose for which he performed those things, was now complete. Which brings us to our third point. Across the whole sweep of the biblical narrative, there are three main periods of extraordinary miracles occurring through God's messengers, through His representatives. Now, kids, uh, and we'll let, we'll let the adults help you with this one. Can you think of any prophets or leaders in the Bible who did incredible miracles? Anyone? Adults, you can help them. Yep. Paul? Yep, he's in the New Testament. Peter, also in the New Testament. Good, great. Yeah. Isaiah, uh, to some extent. Yep. Any others? Yeah. Elijah? Yeah. Can you remember any that he did? No? He has that great one that that I wish I had. He was able to make the pot of stew actually taste nice. No, I'm saying I have the opposite gift. Sorry, that's that's not a slide against my wife's cooking. I promise. You all know that. She has amazing cooking. That's right. 
And, and so in, in the Bible, in, in, the, in the narrative of Scripture, we see Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. Those three periods were the uh, most extraordinary, where God did works through those men, through those representatives. There were certainly other extraordinary works that happened at other times. So we saw a few in the book of Daniel in the last few months, for example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving the, the furnace. Daniel in the lion's den. But the difference is the fact that God did them through these men and did them to authenticate their message of God's redemptive and revelatory work for His people. As we saw last week, Moses stood out among the prophets. Numbers 12.8 tells us that when God speaks to Moses, He doesn't speak to him like He speaks to everyone else in visions and dreams. He says, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And as we saw in our Kings series, Elijah himself had a Moses-like experience on Mount Sinai where God spoke to him directly. And of course, Jesus is part of the Godhead, but also the Gospels record Jesus' transfiguration on a high mountain where Moses and Elijah both appear. Now, much more can be said about this, but you see the point. If miracles served a particular purpose of confirming and verifying the message of the unique ministries of these messengers... And outside of their ministries, we only see occasional signs, occasional powerful works by God according to His will, then there's an even stronger biblical case for why such gifts of regular supernatural works done through God's messengers would cease at the end of the apostolic era. So if Paul, when talking about gifts of working miracles and healing meant the kind of healing and miracles that we read about in the book of Acts, then it makes sense that such sign gifts that confirmed the unique ministry of the apostles would also die out along with them. And given that that is what we see in history, then it makes sense. So the cessationists would say the burden of proof is on continuationists to prove that what Paul meant in these verses when talking about the sign gifts are gifts that are of a different nature to what we see in the apostolic era. So if the burden of proof on cessationists is to show why the spiritual gifts have ceased, well, they say the burden of proof is on continuationists to show why the gifts have changed. Speaking of which, fourthly and finally, cessationists would say that the burden of proof on continuationists is to show why their definitions of prophecy and tongues mean what they say they mean. They would say that the Bible nowhere changes the definition of prophecy between the Old and New Testaments. So if in the Old Testament, the message of a prophet were the very words of God, why should we understand the New Testament gift of prophecy as anything different? And as for tongues, if the clear biblical definition of it that we see is that of other languages, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, what reasons do we have to go and search for this other definition? As I mentioned, we'll look at those two gifts in greater detail next week. So there you have it. The two broad tents and their key ideas. 
Now, many other things can be said about them, of course, but hopefully that gives us a good starting point of how to think about these spiritual gifts. But as I mentioned, this isn't just about understanding these things with our heads. They have very real implications, which brings us to our last section, the charismatic life. To let you know what I think about how to understand the gifts from Scripture, I find that the biblical story pushes me in the direction of cessationism. I think it makes the best sense of the many theological threads that I've pulled on this morning and on many others. But I can understand why, especially if you are somebody who has uh, more skin in the continuationist camp, that this understanding of Scripture makes the Christian life just seem so dry and intellectual and not spirit-filled, not charismatic. But also, not only are we as human beings hardwired for wonder, Christianity is inescapably supernatural. So that naturally leads towards a desire to experience something transcendent, to feel something that goes beyond what we can grasp with our rational minds. I know that feeling. As I said, the experience of Christian spirituality that has this stronger emphasis on feeling like God is saying something to me here and now in the present, apart from the Bible, something personal just for me, is one that, that is very deeply baked into my own thinking and life. I know that feeling. It's been easy for me, and perhaps for you too, to think that continuationists offer that kind of, of uh, vibrant, transcendent spirituality, while cessationists don't. One of my favorite Christian satire pieces is one uh, about the old Presbyterian church, that gets motion lights installed in its main hall. And halfway through the sermon, the lights turn off because nobody's moving and nobody knows what to do. The preacher himself doesn't know what to do. So he just keeps on going and they sit in stillness and darkness until the very end when everybody stands up and the lights come back on. I mentioned that was satirical, right? You can laugh at that. I'm... Richard Riley wouldn't hate me for telling it, I'm sure. Even though we may not really think that cessationists are these kinds of people, there is a, a sense in which we resist that because it comes with, with that kind of vibe. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to be charismatic followers. But I want to encourage you to be charismatic in the biblical sense of the word. So how can I encourage you to do that? given my convictions about what the Word teaches about spiritual gifts. Well, let me give you a few quick applications in closing. And if you lean towards or are fully convinced of continuationism, that I'm intentionally making these applications applicable to you too. Firstly, praise God that we have a God who speaks and who acts. Say with the psalmist, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Secondly, don't demote what God has done and said in Scripture. Indeed, don't demote Scripture itself. 
as being less amazing, as being less fulfilling or less powerful or less able to change or less useful or less transcendent than something that you might feel today. It's all too easy to slip into thinking that the Bible is dry, that understanding it is hard and it requires a lot of study and therefore my faith is just going to feel like school more than something incredible and transcendent. As Hebrews 4.12 reminds us, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Does the Word of God pierce and discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart? On a personal note, even as I was preparing this talk, I was amazed and brought to wonder and praise God as I meditated on His works and on His Word and on His wisdom in the Gospel. I pray that our own feeding on the Word would consistently be marked by this. Thirdly, keep earnestly seeking spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And even if that means that we need not seek the sign gifts anymore, that doesn't mean that you're only limited to the few other ones that Paul mentions in his letters. Remember, the lists are representative. We don't know all the many ways that God has and is giving spiritual gifts to His people to build up Christ's body. And on that, don't think of the non-miraculous gifts as boring or somehow less important. Our church is richly blessed by so many who serve us with spiritual gifts of generosity and sacrifice and acts of service and mercy. If that leaves you a little bit lost, then let me encourage you to reorient your prayers away from yourself and towards the local church that God has placed you in. Remember, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago in verse 7 of chapter 12. They are given for the common good. That is their purpose. Ask God to give you spiritual gifts and to grow in them so that your brothers and sisters might be built up in their faith. Ask God to help you seek out and to fill the needs of the church that He has placed you in. Ask God to turn your heart away from yourself and the particular gift that you think needs to be utilized or emphasized and towards the local body and its needs. And that might mean serving the body in ways that you would not normally. It may mean serving in ways that wouldn't be in your top three preferences. But I pray that God would use that to grow you in your love for Him and in your love for His people. That is, after all, far more important to grow in than the gifts themselves. And on that, finally, never lose sight of 1 Corinthians 13. Even as we wrestle with what Scripture says about the spiritual gifts, as we talk about this with each other, especially over the coming weeks, as we understand the significance of these issues and their implications, never forget that above all of that is love. May our conversations and our encouragements and our challenges and our earnest pleading and returning to Scripture be patient 
kind, not envious, devoid of boasting and arrogance, not rude, not stubbornly self-seeking or irritable, not resentful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but rejoicing in the truth. May we bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. As Tom Schreiner says, if I have the right view of spiritual gifts, but don't have love, I am nothing. May we, in love, live together the charismatic life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great, how wonderful, how enormous a privilege it is that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have worked in your world, and you have shown us who you are, what you are like and how we may come to you. God, I pray that as we continue to wrestle with these things, seemingly insignificant yet also important, extremely important as they are, Lord, may we be marked by love. You have shown us what love is, for you are love. May we in turn, love you, love our brothers and sisters, love our neighbors. And in so doing, may we live the Spirit-filled, the Spirit-gifted, charismatic life. In Jesus' name, amen.